We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this episode we'll be talking about the u.s's gold cup failure i guess with a question mark there prolific packing for a world cup wham with an exclamation point USS, uh, USL's potential pro-rel, the Women's World Cup from the U.S. perspective attack, and the 2026 joint hosting potential, and much, much, much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire! Mossy, how you doing on this uh, Thursday, July 13th in the year 2023? I am doing well and taking it all in because this is the last time I'll be in this room for a very long time. We are uh, heading down under uh, uh, later on in a few hours. By the time that you are listening to this, we will probably be uh, either in the air or at the airport getting ready to head down to the Women's World Cup. So this is the last domestic recording. We'll be international the next time you hear us. And we have all sorts of stuff planned, by the way. Uh, Keep in mind that we will be coming to you Day after day after day, every single match day, we will be doing a new State of the Union podcast from down in Sydney and our incredible set and facilities down there as we uh, bring to you for the next month plus the Women's World Cup. So that's going to be fun. Uh, You watch anything interesting? Uh, No, I've just been getting ready for the flight. Well, we'll talk a little bit more later on in the pod about our preparations for the uh, flight. I did see something. Uh, You got something, though? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You haven't read anything. You haven't seen anything. You haven't listened to anything. Or I just want to say right off the top, uh, producer Sean Sullivan is already en route to Australia. But to say we are in good hands today is an understatement. This is like Babe Ruth pinch hitting because we have the great, uh, formerly Catherine Donnelly. I'd love to say her new name, but I absolutely butchered it a couple of podcasts ago. So I'm not even going to attempt to do it again. Cordaggi. Cordaggi. All right. Well, yeah, look, she's awesome. And this is going to go fine. I know Sean's probably listening to this right now. Hi, Sean. Don't worry. We're right behind you. We'll be, get, we'll be down there soon enough. He's probably picking it apart as we speak. Um, I only saw uh, one thing, but it, it's kind of a companion piece. I don't know if you remember a couple of months ago, I was on a plane and I watched a, uh, a documentary on the great George Michael, late great George Michael. And uh, that was really interesting, but that just focused much more so on his life and solo career after Wham. There is a documentary now that focuses on simply Wham, exclamation point, uh, the band and the duo that he was in that basically introduced him to us back in the uh, in the 80s. And then they they broke up. It was not problematic and they still remain friends and they recognized their their strengths and weaknesses together and actually it was just a really positive and much more interesting documentary than I thought it was going to be talking about where they came from how they got their start their uh, their relationship uh, and the way they supported each other and from a musical perspective how they kind of shared the responsibility but also uh, Andrew Ridgely, who was his partner in uh, in Wham, how he kind of saw George Michael kind of breaking big and knew that he was destined for bigger and better things, and accepted that. And it was really an incredibly humble type of approach in a in an industry that we you know is not known for people being humble and kind. And at times, Andrew Ridgely got incredible amounts of criticism. 
uh, about just being this guy next to uh, George Michael. But you see in this documentary how integral he was in forming that group uh, and the aesthetic and the sound, and then also recognizing that he had not only this incredible partner, uh, but this incredible musician and songwriter that he could channel a lot of his stuff through, and in the process, you know, kind of birth him to the world. So it's, uh, I definitely recommend it. I think it's on uh, Netflix. Uh, anything before we light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. All right, let's light this candle. Where should we start? Let's start with the Gold Cup. The United States has been eliminated. They fell to Panama on penalties in the semis. It was nil-nil after 90 minutes. Then Yvonne Anderson scored for Panama in extra time. Jesus Ferreira equalized. We went to penalties. Panama missed one. Christian Martinez saved by Matt Turner. But the U.S. missed twice. Jesus Ferreira and Christian Roldan denied by Orlando Mosquera. So that was that. Carasquilla converted the winner. Panama off to their third Gold Cup final for the first time since 2015. The U.S. will not be in a Gold Cup final. Um, why don't we do the game first? But I think both of us want to pivot then to some larger conversations about the roster and the U.S.'s overall approach to this tournament. So when it comes to the actual game, I think both of us agree, and I think a lot of people that watch the game recognize that this collection of U.S. players uh, got beaten by a better team, by a better team, and that's that's okay. That can certainly happen. Doesn't make it any less um, painful. But on the day, uh, apart from the first ten minutes and a kind of resilient moment that happened well into the game. I thought that Panama dominated. I thought that they were better individually in terms of the possession that they had, in terms of the intent that they have. And despite the, you know, off the post in the first minute of the game, the U.S. after that failed throughout to really come up with any semblance of a, um, of a direction and of a possession-based type of game that led to anything. And I just thought that ultimately the U.S. got beaten by a better team. Yeah, the only thing I would say about the game is on our last podcast, we suggested that we might want to see Ferreira and Vasquez start together. But I envisioned a change in formation to accommodate that. And B.J. Callahan still tried to fit those two into a 4-3-3. And it did not work at all. As you mentioned, the first half, the U.S. was awful. Panama was the much better team. To B.J.'s credit, he made some adjustments. And the U.S. improved in the second half. They played in more of a 4-2-3-1 with Ferreira underneath Vasquez. But still, I agree with you. Over 120 minutes, Panama was the better team. The right team advanced in the semifinal. They, they did. And relative to B.J. Callahan, and, and keep in mind, this was his first real type of tournament, not individual games like a Nations League type of thing. And so you grow through a tournament and you learn. And I think if he had to do it over again, he might have decided to stick with what got them there. And that is Jesus Ferreira in that number nine role, although we know he plays it very, very differently. And then having a Brandon Vasquez come off the bench and fundamentally change the complexion of a game, which is, a, there's value to that. Keep in mind that Brandon Vasquez had not started a single game in this tournament yet. And that was my question. I, I, I was talking to uh, my brother and, you know, he was like, when the lineup came out and I said, well, it seems a little strange that now all of a sudden Brandon Vasquez is good to start for this team. He did a great job in coming on as a substitute and scoring goals. And yes, there comes a point where for a, a goal scorer, you kind of have to reward him and have him, I guess, matriculate up to the starting position. But we also know it's a very, very different proposition starting. And it had worked well uh, in, the, uh, in the previous games, having that dynamic. And when B.J. Callahan in this game looked to his bench, you know, notwithstanding what Jordan Morris did on the, on the uh, tying goal, there was still limited availability of players that could come in and fundamentally change the complex of the game in the way that uh, uh, that Vasquez did. So I thought that was a little strange. And, you know, it's, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback and do all those things. And after the fact, looking back is what they did. But it didn't work out in the way that I think we hoped or anticipated. And to your point, Jesus Ferreira, he wasn't even playing that right type of winger. It was just more of a withdrawn type of position, which he can play, but I just, it didn't work ultimately. And to your point, he did uh, make changes. 
in terms of putting this U.S. campaign in perspective, I do think there's a larger conversation to be had about the degree to which the advent of the Nations League has devalued the Gold Cup, at least in the U.S.'s eyes and Canada. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's focus on the U.S. This is now two different summers, 21 and 23, in which U.S. soccer chose to approach things the way they did. They clearly think the Nations League is just as prestigious a trophy as the Gold Cup and one that you can win without inconveniencing your top players as much. You play the group games during the season in the FIFA windows, and then all it entails is them showing up early in the summer, winning two games in four days, collecting a trophy, and then spending the rest of the summer on the beach, I guess, recovering their bodies. So they've chosen to prioritize that. The Gold Cup has become a competition to develop young players like Cade Cowell and Jalen Neal and to show some love to hardworking pros like Christian Roldan and Sean Johnson and Aaron Long. And CONCACAF is so weak that even approaching it like that, you can still win the Gold Cup. But even if you don't, it's fine because you've clearly demonstrated by the roster you sent that you don't care about it that much. The trophy you really went all out to win, you did in the Nations League. And losing the Gold Cup doesn't affect the overall narrative of this being a program that's headed in the right direction, has this incredibly bright future. So that's clearly the calculus here on U.S. soccer's part. I wonder how the fans feel about that. I wonder how somebody like Victor Montaliani feels about the United States treating the Gold Cup that way. And more important than any of that, I wonder how Alexi Lalas <laughs> feels about it. I think it sucks. I think, I think it's misguided. And I think it's problematic in the sense that it would be one thing if the Nations League was completely different and better competition. And so we prioritized a tournament, or not even a tournament, we have prioritized games that were going to benefit us more than a Gold Cup, uh, than Gold Cup competition. But that's not the case. It's the same, it's the same group of, play, uh, of teams that you ultimately you come up against. You also, in the Nations League, it's not a tournament format in the way that a World Cup is. And this is all about having the best possible team in 2026. And so I, I, I understand why it's done but I think it's problematic in that you are not getting your best players together to actually be in a tournament setting and to play game after game. How many times in this tournament, Mossy, did we say, yeah, but you know, with yellow cards and fatigue and can you ramp it up again and playing 120 minutes? Well, those are the type of obstacles and challenges that this team under Greg Berhalter, if he makes it to 2026, are going to have to face. And we threw that away and did not give the team the opportunity to experience that. Yeah, everything about the U.S.'s approach to this Gold Cup, it gives off this feeling that they feel like they've outgrown this competition. They have bigger fish to fry. And it is a bit jarring because we've grown accustomed over the last 30 years of the best U.S. players playing in the Gold Cup, the Dempseys, the Donovans, the Altidores, the Winaldos, the Lalases. Uh, the Gold Cup was a substantive part of your international careers. And I'm now wondering moving forward, assuming the U.S. keeps qualifying for Nations League Final Fours, and why wouldn't they? And depending on what other tournaments exist in and around the Gold Cups, are we ever going to see a Pulisic, a Reyna, a McKinney, a Musa, Adams, a Balogun, a Weah, an An uh, Aronson, a Dest play in a Gold Cup again? I think it's going to be hard to see it. Now, keep in mind, somebody asked me on Twitter today about the the backroom type of negotiations that going on that go on and it is an absolute art for you know in the past it's been ernie stewart and matt crocker now and everybody in there to understand the sense sensitivity and the delicate balance of like i said that that skill and art of at times negotiating and it's between the federation it's between the clubs that these players play for and it's with the players and you have to pick and choose the battles that you are willing to fight. And sometimes you have to say, you know what? I'm gonna live to fight another day. I'm not gonna die on this hill. And maybe the, the short-term success, you don't put that at, at the expense of the long-term expense. I, I would love and would have loved to see the US continue on with all of those players that we were talking about in the Nations League. Ultimately, that is the majority of the team that we are going to see and hopefully in a positive light and hopefully fall in love with over these next three years, but and I and I don't, I I understand they need to get they need to get rest. But Matt Turner continued on. There were a couple of others that continued on, and again, I, I don't want a grumpy old man this thing, but you're a national team player, and this is your country that you're representing, and this is a big opportunity. And so, I, I know it's easy for me outside to, to to scream and yell about it, and there are all sorts of considerations that we know and some that we probably don't don't know. But it, it, it is disappointing. And if I was Victor Montaliani right now, you're competing against yourself in a certain way. 
and you're cannibalizing other things. And so to the extent that in the future they can separate them out and still have both things and still have it be attractive to the teams in CONCACAF, including the big dogs, they're going to have to find a way to do that. I do think there's two ways this needs to go. Either the U.S. has to send their best players, which is the route you would prefer. But if they're not going to do that, I know you're not going to like this, but uh, I was planning to say this anyway, and then I saw Hercules Gomez say it, and others have as well. So this is a narrative that's out there. Mm -hmm. If you're still trying to give this tournament some sense of purpose, then I would really double down on it being a developmental tournament. I would have sent the Olympic team. You, next summer, you're already going to have this split where the quote-unquote A team is going to play in the Copa America, and then you're going to send an under-23 team to France to play in the Olympics. So why not use this summer as a dry run for that? You could have sent the A team to the Nations League Final Four and then put together an under-23 team of guys that you feel pretty confident are going to compete in the Olympics the following year and let them get some major tournament experience. You mentioned Matt Turner. God bless him, but there is a contradiction in having Matt Turner play these games alongside the rest of this squad. I almost think Gaga Slonina should have started all these games. Sure. That would have been a better use of this tournament uh, so it's a bit puzzling to me the direct direction they chose to go and why should i watch why should i buy tickets why should fox pay for something like that if you're going to do that then you damn well better be honest and upfront not only with uh the fans but also with the people that you are selling this to and don't and don't be surprised then when people don't take it seriously because it's not your first team but you think the squad they ended up sending was more attractive than it would have been had they sent an under 23 squad yeah what do you mean? You, you, you would have just liked to see a bunch of under-23 players? What, and what if they go out in the group stage? Oh, but it was really good development. I've told you how I feel about development. I don't, yeah, I don't care about an development interesting question. like that. I, I, don't, I, I understand why you're, you're, you're suggesting that and why Hercules or anybody else out there would suggest that. But that holds no appeal to me at interesting. all. Interesting. At all. But you, you do understand the sentiment that guys like Roldan, Jordan Morris, Aaron Long, DeAndre Yedlin, Sean Johnson, there's kind of a, I know what they are at this point, and they're there if we need but them. You but can always do that, though. There's always another player that you could say, yeah, but I don't know what he's like with the national team, so call him in. The national team is, is selective in its nature. It's always going to be selective, but it's also always going to be subjective. And so there's always somebody else. And so when you say, well, I know what this player is, well, yeah, you know what he is, and therefore he gets called into the national team on a continual basis because Greg Berhalter or others know what he is, and they believe that he can get better. Now, there can certainly be a conversation as to, I know what this player is, and he's never, ever going to get better, and this is not good enough. That's a legitimate and fair argument, uh, argument to make. I think when it comes to this tournament that we just saw, notwithstanding what you were talking about, the question then arises, was this a failure? Was this a failure by the U.S. team? And in the context of our history and our quality and depth, yeah, it was a failure. We should, as the United States, where we are in 2023, leading into 2026, with the amount of talent that we have, with the talent even that we brought to this uh, Gold Cup, we should find a way to be able to beat all of these others. And we should always be looking at ourselves in the context of bigger and better things than CONCACAF. We know that we can, if we want, uh, rule CONCACAF. But if that's the expectation, then we should always be expecting to do that. And when we don't do that, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the team that is sent, it should be considered a failure. It doesn't mean that these players aren't good. It doesn't mean these players don't, might not matriculate up to the A team. Yeah, when I said the U.S. is acting as if they've outgrown the Gold Cup and they have bigger fish to fry, that might become true in the coming years. The U.S. could become to CONCACAF what Bayern Munich is to the Bundesliga, but since it's early days in that transformation, like I said, it is a bit jarring still because we've grown accustomed to seeing the top U.S. players play. You think people will march and uh, chant and scream and yell about uh, you know the elites wanting to get together and uh, prove themselves and have competition against better teams? Because wouldn't we would just be abandoning CONCACAF and therefore think, saying we're better than you and this isn't good for us and we want to go someplace else in the same way that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that uh, the Super League or anything else did? It's an interesting conversation. That's why we've evoked Victor Montaliani's name sure. because his opinion is interesting in all this. Yeah, I mean, there's been talk about Brazil and Argentina playing in the UEFA Nations League. And yeah, the U.S., the better it gets, is going to want to get in on that action as well. And some of this Super League stuff that we've seen at club level, is it going to start to infect the international game as well where some countries are going to say, well, we've outgrown our federation. Let's try to form 
new competitions with the best countries from other regions and that's kind of the route this is all going to go i don't know and, and the, to equate it to what happened what would happen or what should happen is that people would say no we have a responsibility as part of CONCACAF to help everybody and not just think of ourselves I don't know if that's uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was the argument at times that was made when the elites tried to you know uh, form a super league, and yes, there was incredible money behind it. But we're if we're looking at it strictly from a competitive standpoint, does playing in Concacaf stunt us? Does it hurt us in terms of the growth? And to your point, have we ultimately outgrown Concacaf? But you know whether it's whether it's a country that's uh, you know, involved from a sporting perspective or a political perspective, cultural perspective, if you're going to be part of a club, I think you have a responsibility to live up to being part of that club and not always separating yourself, uh, separating yourself out. So yeah, it's, uh, it, it, I, I don't know if that's ultimately going to change. Uh, when it comes down to this, uh, this tournament, ultimately, is it, is it going to be memorable? Is it forgettable? Is it eh, moving on? I had fun covering it. Okay. Yeah. I did too. It was, it, it provided some incredible moments. Yes, we didn't have that magical moment that we had back in 2021. By the way, Matt Turner, who now we talk about in the, the, the sense of being one, and at times maybe even the great star of this team, he used that gold cup to become the star. And as I said last night on air, if you had asked us a year before the World Cup, who was going to start in goal? We always said Zach Steffen. Not only did Zach Steffen not start in it, but Matt Turner used the Gold Cup to say, I am going to take this. I mean, just the smiling assassin that Matt <laughs> Turner is. He said, no, I am going to, I'm going to drink your milkshake. And not only that, he was the starter. Now he's the undisputed number one. And Zach Steffen didn't even go to the World Cup. Now, interestingly enough, Mexico has taken a different approach to the last two Gold Cups. They have sent a strong squad. The only notable players missing were through injury. Chucky Lozano, end of the season injured, and then they lost Alexis Vega and Sebastian Cordova on the eve of the tournament. Two years ago, Chucky was in the squad. He got injured in the first game against Trinidad and Tobago, missed the rest of the tournament. But Mexico seems to be zagging while the U.S. and Canada are zigging, I guess. Um, and this summer, it looks like they're going to be rewarded for it because I do think they're going to end up winning this Gold Cup. They Can we pivot to that semifinal? Sure, sure. I, uh, I want to come back to to Ferreira at, at, at one point. So let's finish up with Ferreira. Let's go to uh, to Mexico. So Mexico strolled into the final. I got this one completely wrong. I thought Jamaica would put up a better fight, but Mexico hammered them 3-0. Henry Martin scored in the second minute. Then Luis Chavez with a great free kick, similar to the one he scored against Saudi Arabia at the World Cup. And then Alvarado late sealed it. Uh, so 3-0 final in Vegas. So it will be Mexico against Panama Sunday at SoFi. Mexico, obviously overwhelming for favorites to win their ninth Gold Cup title. I mean, look, this looked like an old type of Mexican performance where it was dominant. They got the early goal. Uh, they didn't miss a beat. And they did it against what a lot of us felt like was you know, maybe the be best individual talent yet to be determined whether it's the best Jamaican team. And it wasn't even a question, uh, ultimately. Jamaica didn't really put up a fight. The only thing is now is if they go on and, and beat Panama, that's still an if because this is a good Panama team, although it's, they're going to be a tired Panama team. I think if they, had, if they were able to draw it up in a perfect world, it's obviously going through the US because there's this built-in excuse now. Well, yeah, but we didn't send our full team. We didn't obviously make it to the final. And so you can have your moment if, if they do have that moment Sunday night where Mexico raises the cup and the confetti is coming down. While, while on the surface, I don't think they're going to care how they do it. And, and Mexico, as we said time and time again, needs that moment of celebration. It's still going to be a little bit uh, tainted. Assuming they play well and win on Sunday, then it does raise an interesting question with Jimmy Lozano. The players clearly want him to stay and be named the permanent manager. Uh, but because of what we just said, the fact that the U.S. and Canada didn't take this Gold Cup that seriously and didn't send their strongest squads, is there a, a danger that Mexico reads too much into this and gets caught up in the moment and gives the job permanently to a guy who's kind of not up to it? Yeah, you can be the, a prisoner of the moment. And, and let's be honest, the moment is positive right now. Although, because Mexico's been so bad, it's, it, you know, it's a pretty low threshold <laughs> in order to be positive. And you know, I, I think back to you know, the Steve Sampson days 
where he took over and we were all 100% on board and he very, very quickly and was very smart in recognizing what wasn't working beforehand and changed it immediately. And it was a breath of fresh air and that translated into some very good play and some historic types of results. But again, in that prisoner of the moment, you, Mexico and El Tri, they have to really look at this and say, okay, this is in this moment wonderful and this is positive, but is this sustainable? Is it going to get stale? Is this the type of person that has the longevity, that has the ability over the next three years to really do the things that are going to be successful in 2026? Or is this just a, a blip, an anomaly, uh, an aberration, albeit incredibly positive, that we use in that moment? And that's, you know, that's up to them. I don't know, I'm not in, inside, but this is certainly better than what we have seen from Mexico in terms of the feeling, the sense, but also the eye test with what we see on the field. But I'm not sure that it's sustainable. Uh, and we'll have reaction to Sunday's final in one of our pods from Sydney. But you wanted to end this conversation talking about Jesus Ferreira. Yeah, let's just you know kind of close it up here with Jesus Ferreira because he has become such a, a, a lightning rod for uh, criticism and, and praise. And he had such an interesting tournament. And there's part of me that had almost wished, Walker Zimmerman was part of Na Nations League, right? Uh, I, I think uh, the Nations League thing. So par part of me kind of wishes that he had kind of been included in that. We could have seen him in the context of playing with the quote unquote better team when it comes to the US. Or part of me wishes, hey, it would have been interesting to see had Pepe been in this situation and what the narrative would have become how people would have perceived the, the, the players in, in different spots. And look, you can only play what's in front of you, as we said time and time again. Uh, I, I, got a, I thought Jesus Ferreira coming into this tournament was Jesus Ferreira, right? Not a bad player, and as a matter of fact, a young player with incredible potential. After this tournament, I have so much more respect for Jesus Ferreira in the way that he plays. But I don't know if he's ever going to be the player that anybody, including myself, ultimately want him to be but this dude was a warrior out here during this tournament he did everything that was asked for him rarely came off the field playing back-to-back -back 120 uh uh games got the goals and including by the way the goal that even enabled this team to go and uh and, and go into penalties and all while people are crapping on him for whatever reason he's doesn't play the position that I, the, the way that I want him to play. He's an MLS player. He misses chances. You know, the list goes on and on and on. Some of them fair, some of them absolutely ridiculous. But the tenacity and the, the heart and the spirit, uh, and, and when it really comes down to it, you know, the, the class that he showed throughout it all, I think it deserves praise. And... I'm, I'm proud of him as a U.S. men's national team player for ultimately what he did. And I think at times the criticism, which comes with the territory, I think at times it got completely out of whack and completely unfair. And he'll end up winning the golden boot. Nobody's going to catch him on these two teams in the final. And his seven goals tied for the most in American has ever scored in a gold cup. Clint Dempsey got seven in 2015. So you're starting to see Ferreira alongside a lot of these legends like Landon and Clint in different statistical categories, which I know is jarring for some people, but those are the numbers. Those are the, and look, <laughs> things can change. And I know people go crazy when you do the, uh, the power rankings, uh, and which is why we do them, by the way. <laughs> uh, but a power ranking, keep in mind, is a snapshot in that moment. And so when I have, for example, Jesus Ferreira over Pepe, it's in that moment. And it's a, like I said, a, a snapshot and a glimpse of what this team is right now. And we were coming off the Balogun hoopla and all that kind of excitement, and rightfully so. And then we got Jesus Ferreira scoring a bunch of goals. And look, you might have Pepe above Jesus Ferreira. You might have, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Josh Sargent or somebody else. These are made to be talked about. But the complete dismissal of Jesus Ferreira in any capacity, anywhere, in the top five, or let alone how dare I have him as my number two out there in that moment. I think it, uh, I, I think it comes from a bias, and I think ultimately it comes from a lack of understanding from a number of things, not the least of which is what power rankings are. <laughs>
<laughs> we'll end on this. In September, the U.S. plays two friendlies against Oman and Uzbekistan. It'll be Greg Berhalter's first two games back as coach. Uh, if he were to only name two strikers in that squad, uh, who do you think he'll name? Who do you think he should name? Only two? Well, then I think he'll name Balogun. Um, and then I think it's going to be probably Pepe. Um, you know, depending on, obviously, if everybody's healthy and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, probably it's probably going to be Pep. That's yeah, it. But, you know, oh. I don't know. When, when they name, well, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I, I think that's uh, who Greg. And it is going to be interesting when Greg comes back. So now, officially, Greg is the head coach again. And I'll, I'll leave you with this, Mossy. This is why Greg Berhalter did not coach in the Gold Cup. And I'm not saying he's happy right now. But this is why the Federation and Matt Crocker, in essence, protected him. Because they recognized that this could go pear-shaped, that this team that they had was going to need a lot of things to go right in order for them to win. And it doesn't completely absolve Greg Berhalter, who a lot of people, you know, tinfoil saying he's just you know, lurking in the scenes and, and making all the decisions. But it does insulate him and, like I said, to a certain extent, protect him from that. And he can have a clean slate when they start uh, later on this fall. All right. Should we take a qu uh, quick break? Yep. All right. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got some interesting doings when it comes to the structure of soccer in the U.S. and that pyramid, whether it's a pyramid or not. And our friend Christian Pulisic with some news. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back. We got some interesting news, Mossy, uh, relative to the, the structure, the potential structure going forward of the U.S. soccer pyramid. What do, uh, what, what do, and I think this is good because it just kind of plays into a lot of the stuff that we talk about here in the uh, State of the Union. Yeah, some great reporting by Tom Bogert for The Athletic. Uh, he reported that uh, the USL is about to hold a vote to determine whether they're going to implement promotion relegation across three different tiers. This is an effort to differentiate themselves from MLS and to rival MLS. They're hoping to get first division status. If this is approved, it would be a fascinating development in American soccer. Incredible. Um, I, for many, many years, have said, build a better mousetrap. When people say, this is wrong, and why is this happening, and why are you doing this? I said, build a better mousetrap. In this case, I think that USL is taking my advice, and they are attempting to build a better mousetrap. I think it's out of necessity and an existential threat going forward. I think they recognize, and if you read uh, the article, there's you know, kind of blatant recognition and admission that if it continues on this way, they are not going to be able to survive. And so they have to do something different. I have also for many years say, said that if somebody tries to build a better mousetrap, I will support it 100%. And in this case, I support it 100%. Uh, this is competition, and competition is good. This is a way of doing things in a little different way than we have seen. And ultimately, the customer will decide. The marketplace will decide. In this situation also, it should be noted that what they are talking about here is an intra-league, intra with an A, league, type of promotion relegation. And for a lot of pro-rel zealots out there, that is a bastardized version of it. But it is still promotion relegation. And as, as I said before, there's nothing stopping a league, in this case it's USL, from taking all the teams that they have at their disposal and having within that league up-down promotion, uh, promotion relegation. The other part of it is the Division I sanction. That's where it gets really interesting because not to get too much in the weeds, but the United States Soccer Federation sanctions leagues relative to existing criteria and uh, levels and expectations that have to be met in order to get that Division I sanction. There's nothing that precludes having multiple sanction, Division I sanction leagues, which is what this ultimately would be. But as is always the case when this vote happens, you have to make a compelling argument to owners 
who have already bought into a league that does not have promotion relegation, and therefore mitigates that risk in an already risky venture. And you have to convince them to voluntarily assume that risk of promotion relegation. In this instance, it would be mostly relegation and that, and that risk. And to voluntarily do it. And that's no small feat, because that train has kind of left the station. But if you can make a compelling case to them that this is necessary for their survival and for their business interests, then they will vote for it. If not, then it's dead on arrival. But I love the fact that they are at least thinking about doing something different. And if this is this magic elixir, if this is this panacea, then people will come running for it and people will migrate to it. And when it comes to business, USL will carve off or completely take over all of the MLS fans out there because this is so much more compelling. I don't consider myself a zealot, but I do think this is a bastardized version of it. Uh, to me, the whole point of promotion relegation is to have all the different leagues connected and to have that biggest league at the top as the ultimate carrot on the stick. We work with a guy at Fox called Ben Grossman, who's a big Crystal Palace fan. Sure. And he's told me on numerous occasions he would sign for Palace finishing 17th in the Premier League in every season from now until the day he dies. All he wants is to be in the show. He gets off every season on seeing Palace play at Anfield, play at Old Trafford, firing up Peacock on Saturday mornings. And when Rebecca Lowe goes through all the fixtures, her mentioning Crystal Palace. And the American soccer equivalent of that would be getting to play LAFC, getting to play Seattle, getting to face Messi and Chicharito. And so as long as you still have the biggest league with the best teams and the biggest stars walled off from everybody else, I don't think you're quite doing promotion relegation in the truest sense of it. Well, in the truest sense of it, you're absolutely right. But relative to the argument of the competition and therefore the pressure, whether it's the pressure on the players or the pressure on the clubs to maintain their status, and to spend more and to do the things that are going to keep them in the league, I think that's where some of the difference and some of the, the interest may lay. I do worry, though, f for the sake of USL folks, uh, there's already this narrative emanating from MLS people that, okay, this is it. This is the ultimate referendum on Pro-Rel. If this doesn't light the world on fire, then all your Pro-Rel people need to take your ball and go home because it will have proven that Pro-Rel doesn't work in the United States. Uh, do you buy into that, or do you think this is an interesting attempt at it, but it shouldn't be the ultimate referendum on it? I mean, it shouldn't be the ultimate referendum if, in that if in the future people want to try it, either intra-league type of stuff, or at some point they have the bandwidth and the ability and I guess the money and the, um, the impact to be able to call everybody together and to do a much more traditional type of style that is open in terms of that, uh, that pyramid, yeah, I'm, I, I have no problem. And again, I have lived promotion relegation. I completely understand the passion associated with, the competition associated with, the pressure associated with, and you know the, the joy that comes with it. And to be quite honest, the pain, but within that, all of, uh, all of the drama. But I don't need it to enjoy my soccer. It doesn't, I don't enjoy MLS any more or less because it has promotion relegation or it doesn't have promotion relegation. Do you think Don Garber views USL as any kind of threat? Is he worried about this news or you could care less? No, because I think that this is a Hail Mary when it comes to, to USL. And that's, that's not necessarily a good thing because it just shows the, not the dire straits, because I do think that this is a successful business, but it is limited. And they are recognizing that if they can if they can tap into that fundamental to desire to be like the rest of the world, and I can rail against it all I want, but, I, but I'm not, I can't deny the fact that there are those out there. If you can tap into that, and in doing this, you are, whether you are or not, but at least you are perceived as being more credible, then that's, that's a win. And, especially, and their problem is going to be once you get the, the hardcores that have been dying for this, and, you know, will be uh, pinching themselves that at least this version exists, then where do you go? Do, you know, are, are MLS fans right now really that miffed? And are potential MLS fans so turned off in the numbers that we're talking about that they're not going to watch it simply because there's no promotion relegation? I, I don't think so. And I think we do get caught in the echo chamber, and I, I'm as guilty as anybody else out there, of 
assigning much more meaning and value to a group of voices, vociferous and loud, um, and at times fair and, <laughs> and, and intelligent, at times not, calling for something like this. And therefore, in this moment, they are being, into, to a certain extent, rewarded. But as I said before, I appreciate and I can respect people doing something different and trying something different and throwing something at the wall that, that hasn't, to this extent, been done before. I think that there is room for everybody in the soccer ecosystem, but I do fear that if this does not work for them, and what the definition of work is, I don't ultimately know, but if this doesn't work for them, they will already have thrown everything but the kitchen sink in, and I don't know where they go from there. And the expression is couldn't care less. I, I made a what mistake I that I hate when people, no, I said oh, okay. Don Garber could care less. That makes no sense. It's so, couldn't care less. Well, I, you stand on principle, and I, no. I, uh, I no. like that. But anyway, we will see ultimately if the vote passes, number one, and therefore, and then what this ultimately uh, looks, uh, looks like going forward. But the, the debate rages on, and the soccer wars with a Z will continue on between everybody, including at this point, I guess it's going to be MLS and USL. I will say this finally. I mentioned the... Um, uh, the uh, Division One sanctioning that happens from USL, uh, from uh, USSF, the United States Soccer Federation. I do think that those rules and regulations and minimums and requirements have to be looked at and have to be justified on a continual basis. A lot of times, people, you know, put on their tin foil and say they're there to preclude and to exclude. They're there to protect in many instances and in many of these things, and so. You don't just throw them all out, but you should have to justify from a U.S. soccer perspective as to why they all exist. And if they don't, and, and, and if they are done just to keep others out, I think that is problematic. But we're going to find out that too. So, you know, uh, again, the soccer wars continue. Uh, next item, Christian Pulisic's move to AC Milan is now official official. We saw footage of him arriving at Malpensa Airport in Milano and being greeted by AC Milan fans. He had this huge smile on his face, looked like a guy that feels like he's escaped prison by <laughs> leaving Chelsea. Um, and listen, lost in that whole Mishagaz from the last pod about whether he should go back to MLS or not, you were defending Landon in the sense that it wouldn't be that crazy for him to come back and that he shouldn't be criticized for it. But you and Landon actually disagree on this move to AC Milan because Landon seems very concerned about playing time mm -hmm. here and wonders if this is that good a fit. Uh, you and I both think this is actually a very good place for him and where he is going to play, and so th this seems like a good move. Yeah, I think, I think Landon, and I don't want to speak for him, but in our conversations that we had, I think he feared that this was just another player that they were adding to their stable and that if he just moves to Milan and doesn't play and is in the same situation, then really nothing has changed. And maybe even you could say that it's a, a step down. I don't know. But I, I think that that's certainly a concern that I would share with Landon. I have, I think, m more faith that Milan is doing this from a soccer perspective because they see a good player who they can make use of in multiple positions, and they are bringing him in to start. Now, they're not just going to give him a starting position no matter what he does, but I think he's a good enough player to, to earn a starting position with a knock on wood that he stays healthy. And that is a big knock on wood because that has not always happened uh, go, uh, with, his, uh, with his career. But this is a new lease on life. You saw him with a big smile. And look, not for nothing, but there's an American playing at AC Milan. That's a, that's a good thing. And who knows, there might be more Americans playing at AC Milan. We can go there next. Uh, AC Milan still being linked to Balogun and Musa. If they were to sign even one of those two, but certainly if they got both of them, then this would become the new Leeds, right? I mean, yeah. this would be America's team. This would be a team that I would watch even more so than I do now. And it would drive a lot of eyeballs and grab that American soccer audience that every team around the world is craving. And yeah, that would, that, that would be awesome. From a pure soccer perspective, I've said, you know, so from Balogun to Pulisic to Musa, if you could only have one on your team, if you're starting your team, which one do you think carries the most value? I, I almost, I, whoever gets Musa, I think is, regardless of what they pay for him, they're underpaying for him. I think he's that good, and I think he has that much potential going forward. Um, and, I, but, and if you can get all three, bring it on, baby. I'm the amo. Uh, one last postscript to Pulisic's time at Chelsea. Chelsea is coming to the United States this summer, as are many other top European clubs. And some people wondered if it made sense to get rid of Pulisic right before you're going to embark on a tour of the United States. 
but there was a story about how Pulisic in his time at Chelsea didn't want to play the role of the American, never bought into being Mr. United States, turned down a lot of media opportunities that would have been along those lines. And there was some, they said there was some frustration from Chelsea because of that. What did you make of that? Is that just like knocking the guy on the way out? Or? I can't relate to it. I can't understand that type of approach because I always considered you know, media and marketing and all of that as it comes with the job and it's part of the equation. Now he has grown up in a very, very different environment than I ever did. And so my generation, we always recognize that being, you know, spreading the gospel and being the voice and at times the face of soccer meant much more so, uh, much more than just kicking the, the ball. And so there's a part of me that, since I can't relate to it, I say, well, what are you doing? But he makes so much money, it's not as if he needs the, the marketing side of it. And he has been, let's be honest, in a soccer bubble from a very young age. And so maybe in his mind, it's not something that he either wants to do, but I also have to be fair and say, not everybody not only wants to, not everybody's good at it, and not everybody feels comfortable doing that. I do think that the Christian Pulisic that we see nowadays is night and day from when we first saw him. He has come out of his shell as much as you know, Christian Pulisic can. I think he gives much more interesting types of interviews. I think he's much more social and gregarious in the way that he approaches it. And look, at a young age, he was being, you know, microphones and cameras. Not everybody is comfortable in that type of environment. But for him, I understand Chelsea's frustration. You can't, you are an American right now. And if you don't understand the business of soccer and being brought in because you are an American, and because you're a good soccer player, then I think you're being naive. And I think it's the responsibility of representation, so agents uh, and the club that you're going to, to come to an understanding before as to what the role and responsibility is going to be. And you might not think it's fair in that there's others that aren't doing it, but I always looked at it as, this is additional value that I am bringing. And if Christian Pulisic doesn't feel that he should do that for whatever reason, I think it makes him less valuable. That's it. All right. Uh, some interesting stories there that we will keep an eye on going forward. But it's, it's all good stuff, let's be honest. Um, and at a time and a, and, a, and a moment where we could certainly talk about negative stuff, I'm, I'm all about positivity, my friend. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, ooh, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your comments, questions, and concerns. You can use the uh, social media platforms out there. If you do, please use Ask Alexi, and keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi. Or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. What do we got this uh, episode, Mossy? Uh, first up, a Twitter question, at Salmon Gay asks, how many combined goals and assists will Rodman, Williams, and Smith get in the Women's World Cup? Interesting. Uh, well, we had uh, a wonderful talk last uh, pod about the send-off game and what Trinity Rodman did at that point. Um, all right, so if, I think that Trinity Rodman, Sophia Smith, and Alex Morgan are be the, the top three. I mean, that's not crazy, right? Would you agree with me there? I agree. Where do you think Lynn Williams fits into that? She would be that fourth super sub kind of. For role. whom? If she, uh, probably uh, Rodman. Coming in, okay. So let's, if we're establishing that, so, and I agree. So knock on wood again, no, no injuries. Let's not have any injuries. Let's just positivity, right? So I think that Trinity Rodman is going to score. All right, let's do, let's just do group phase, okay? Uh, again, uh, a reminder, Vietnam the Netherlands, and then Portugal, in that order. There is an opportunity for all of these women to feast. So I'm going I'm to put Trinity Rodman at, between the three games, she gets th three goals. I'm going to say Sophia Smith gets four goals. And I'm going to say Lynn Williams gets one goal coming off of the bench. What about you? What are you over-unders in those? 
Uh, that sounds about right. Does it? Yeah, I mean, Vietnam, let's be honest, that has six or seven uh, written you're, on it. You're sleeping on Vietnam, I'm telling you. That's right, that Germany result. It's I, not going to yeah, be a Thailand type of situation. I mean, I, I'm not saying the U.S. isn't going to win and couldn't could win by a lot, but... But wait a minute, if I'm sleeping in Vietnam, how are you getting those crazy numbers? So where's the huge blowout going to come from? Because those are numbers that would indicate the team scoring lots of goals. Well, I'm I'm indicating that they are going to score the goals. Those are the oh okay. The so so you, Alex Morgan won't. I don't think Alex scores as many uh, as uh, as the wingers. Maybe I mean I mean that's that's what I'm going with right now. But but even look if if they win five nothing in that first game, so you already got five right there. Then you play the Netherlands, maybe a, a two to one win or something like that. So now you're at seven, okay? And then Portugal four nothing. What do we get now? So now we're at eleven. Eleven. So what did what did I have? So you had uh, four for four, Sophia, five, three. six, seven, eight, nine, and then a couple goals from like a center back or a midfielder or something like that. Or I didn't include Alex. So maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm overestimating it. But that's what I'm going with. Wait, you went five for Sophia Smith? No, four. I think. So four, three, and one. I think I said four. Yeah. Okay. Right. So eight of the eleven in your scenario would come from those players. I don't know. We'll have to listen back. <laughs> listen back and tell us what we said. But this was off the top of my head. But yeah, I. So there, there you go, uh, Sam and Gay. That's uh, that's what we think is going to happen. All right. All right. We have a couple of voicemails. Let's take a listen to the first one right now. Hey, Alexia and Mossy. This is Alex from Chicago again. Uh, question for you both. Do you think Mexico and Canada are running risks of losing uh, co-hosting, like, ship of the 2026 World Cup with all their issues? Uh, more so Mexico than Canada. I know Canada's financial issues, you know, I think they'll figure it out. But for Mexico, you know, the continued homophobic chants, you know, the fans fighting in the stands every time their team goes down or is losing, playing poorly, you know, that's not a way to resolve it. You know, I'm Mexican-American, so just seeing this all unfold is pretty ugly. And then obviously with the recent, you know, incident that happened at Levi's, you know, is Mexico running the risk of losing any sort of Hosting opportunity. I'd love to know your guys' uh, opinion. Thanks. Okay, Alex in Chicago asking about the potential of Mexico and Canada not being part of 2026 for, for different reasons. Alex, interesting question. There is not a chance in hell that Mexico and Canada aren't involved in 2026. I don't think that the... I don't think that FIFA, I don't think that the U.S. would do something like that for the way that it would reflect um, and the way that it would play. It would just be horrible, horrible optics to do something like that. Now, keep in mind, the reason why the United States brought in Canada and Mexico as joint hosts for 2026 is that it made our bid, the U.S.'s bid, that much more palatable and acceptable to a lot of membership when it comes to the voting members who held their nose and voted for the US. And keep in mind, everything is politics, and so this was a strategic play from the US. And it bolstered it, and ultimately, it resulted in the US winning. Yes, 80% of the games are going to be in the US, but on all the... Um, in all the in all the media, it's going to be this joint hosted type of World Cup. I don't think that the homophobic chant, I don't think that the violence in the stands, I don't think any of that is going to change the mind of FIFA as to whether Mexico is going to host games. And I don't think that the financial situation when it comes to Canada, as dire as it may or may not be, is going to preclude them from also hosting. On the Canada front, doesn't FIFA foot the bill for most of the... Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, they, they, but they still have problems. Um, and as a matter of fact, Canada maybe more so actually can use this to build resources and to establish relationships and potentially mine this financially um, in, in a way that helps them maybe get out of uh, the problems that they've put themselves in. All right, another voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hey, Alexi Mossy, this is Daniel, uh, second-time caller, trying to join the ranks of uh, uh, repeat callers here on State of the Union, called from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, my question is kind of a two-parter. One is, uh, Alexi, I really enjoyed the, the segment uh, that you had at the end, the one for the road. I was just calling to see 
uh, kind of how you come up with your with your ideas for that, if that's all you or if you have other input. Uh, second would be if, uh, Mossy, if you were to uh, select a, um, a topic for uh, One for the Road, what would it be? Thanks, guys. Interesting. All right. Well, Daniel, yeah, welcome back again. Uh, you've made it once again onto the show and uh, multiple times now, which is, which is great. We love that. Yeah, so the, the One for the Road thing came as kind of a, an add-on or a tag to the show that enabled me either in the moment while we're recording the show uh, to, to talk about something or to fit something in that just didn't have a place in the show. I get wonderful input uh, even on the day of the show, before the show, hey, would you consider doing this? And, and it really is just about feel, something that, that interests me and something that I want to talk about. Mossy is, uh, is great at kind of flushing some stuff out, as are all of the people that we have that, uh, that work here. I, I try to make it something a little bit more personal, and sometimes it's kind of on the nose, but for the most part, you kind of want to differentiate it from something that hasn't happened in the show. So if I look at it and I say, you know, this could be placed somewhere else in the show, then I might steer away from it. Um, and while a lot of times it ends up me being kind of in monologue mo mode, we've also had moments where I'm just as interested in what Mossy has to say about what I'm talking about here. So it really just kind of becomes another part and another discussion part of the show. But it's funny you, you, you mentioned this. So for example, today, Mossy, I'll let you uh, figure out what we want to do for uh, one for the road. You got any uh, suggestions? Well, can I just say, first of all, yeah. um, old school State of the Union fans will know that in the first couple of years of this pod, it was structured in such a way where I did have my own monologue. It was called Mossy Makes the Case. Mm -hmm. uh, I hated doing it every week. I was not good at it. 99% of my monologues were completely forgettable. And so we ended up pivoting to a different format on this pod. I had one, though, that was actually controversial. And it's ironic that we're talking about Christian Pulisic today when this uh, question comes up. Uh, when Pulisic joined Chelsea from Dortmund, I did this whole uh, spiel about how Americans who had adopted other big Premier League teams other than Chelsea were now going to be confronted with this weird club versus country dilemma. What if you're a Manchester United fan and Chelsea and United are battling for the title and Pulisic goes on this tear and leads Chelsea to the title over United? How would you feel about that? Same thing with American Liverpool fans, etc. But my tone was kind of snarky. I was implying that no. <laughs> these, a lot of these American Premier League fans are fraudulent and not really true fans of their clubs, and they would be willing to ditch How them. How dare to, you, Moss? And so for one week in my life, I kind of got a window into what it's like <laughs> to be you because I got some genuine hate on social media. It's the only time in five years of doing this podcast that happened. Um, so, yeah, those are fun times. But, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I'm not a big monologue guy. I prefer to just like more conversational right, news right. of the day kind of stuff. So I'm glad we pivoted to that on this podcast. Well, that's, you know, that, that is what we've done. But I, 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 liked, uh, I, I liked it and I enjoyed not watching you squirm because you don't <laughs> give yourself enough credit. You were wonderful. And, and even in the monologue form, I thought you said some really interesting things. And, uh, and I like it. But this is a work in progress. We, we have grown over the years that we have done this show. Obviously, we recognize what works, what, what doesn't work. We've tweaked things here uh, throughout, but uh, we, and we still will uh, going forward. So this show right now, if we were to listen to it four years from now, I think it would, we'd, we'd cringe at times or we would say, ah, that, that's gone away, and rightfully, uh, rightfully so. Uh, to your point, though, in, in terms of your, uh, your question, so, for example, I think we mentioned um, a couple shows ago about packing, right? So now I think about this and I say, you know what? Why don't we make packing for a World Cup part of the show? And that's a perfect type of one for the road as we get ready to do this. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Daniel, I'll give you my one for the road. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, as we mentioned, I give you my one for the road. And... This is literally for the road because we are heading out on the road. Mossy and I will be up, up, and away, heading down under tonight uh, for the Women's World Cup. And I started thinking about World Cups. And now I've done so many of them. We've all done so many of them. And you, you never take it for granted. You're like, kind of like Matt Turner in that you never thought it was due to you. And so therefore, you appreciate each and every one. And each and every one in and of itself is a story, and a different story. But there are some 
constants and there are some threads and some inevitables. So I, I often say this about World Cups. At every World Cup, somebody is going to get sick. Somebody is going to go to the hospital. Somebody is going to get sent, sent home. Somebody is going to make a mistake. Somebody is going to yell and or be yelled at. Somebody is going to fall in love. Somebody is going to have their heart broken. Somebody is going to say something that they shouldn't. All of those things have happened every single World Cup that I have been to. Because you are in this ecosystem, in this micro system of men and women coming together for five weeks, working sometimes in very close quarters. And so you are this living, breathing organism with all of the things that are, uh, that are going to happen. But by the way, you're also going to do something that you never thought you were going to do. You are going to see things that you never thought you would see. You are going to have an experience unlike anything that you have had, and you are going to be given this incredible gift. When it comes to um, packing, I also think that I've, I've learned something over the years. First and foremost, less is more. I will say, Mossy, uh, and I have to tell this story, because when you came into the show this morning uh, to do it, you walked in, and immediately every, everyone was a, a flutter. Okay, not because we were timing you as when you get in, but more importantly, because you showed up in shorts. Okay? <laughs> and your, your explanation was just kind of pure, classic Mossy, in that we are leaving tonight, so we are in the midst of packing, if not already packed. But tell the folks why you are in shorts today. No, so all my good jeans are already in the suitcase. I don't want to open that up. I have this one pair of jeans that's really comfortable, really broken in, so it's the one I want to wear on this 15-hour flight I'm about to embark on. Unfortunately, last night over dinner, I had this terrible accident, got food all over it, some really bad stains. So today I've been running around trying to take care of a bunch of last-minute things before the trip. So there's a laundry place across the street from my apartment. So I dropped off the pants in the morning. I said, can you, can you get this back to me in a few hours? They said, no problem. So I'm going to pick it up at 5.30. But so in the absence of those jeans and with all my other good ones already in the suitcase, I threw on shorts, which is noteworthy because... Uh, when we did our first show at this new studio where we were standing up, um, I made this big thing out of the fact that, why would anybody doubt that I was going to wear jeans? Of course I wear <laughs> jeans. I always wear jeans at this podcast. And it's now like three in a row that I haven't, that I've worn shorts. So Kiara has not let me forget that. So that's now become a thing that I, I don't wear jeans on the podcast. Okay. Well, I'm happy to hear that you do have more than one pair of jeans because right. that was the concern there. It was like uh, the, the pair of jeans that you had was going to the dry cleaners. The fact that you're dry cleaning your jeans, love it. Uh, it just makes me love you. It's a pretty more. bad stain. So okay. It, <laughs> I, no, I just I don't even know if they're dry cleaning. I just told them do whatever you got to do to get this. Whatever stain. you got to do. Yeah. All right, it's an emergency type of yeah, situation. Yeah. But you will be sporting those jeans provided they come back tonight. Here, we're, tonight. We're, we're on the same flight. Oh, so I can't wait to see you them. and Rob Stone will get to. I cannot it. wait to see them. Well, speaking of uh, of Rob Stone, well, I'll get to that in a second. Packing, uh, as far as I'm concerned, as I said, less is more. Inevitably, you will not use half of the crap that you, uh, that you pack. We are going down to a place that's actually in winter, so we are going down to a place that is cold, so we are going to have to bring some more layers uh, because it is winter down in, uh, in Australia, and it will be cold. Um, I, and I just kind of... It's different for me because I wear a suit every day, and so my wardrobe is already sent there and down there for me and all of the talent that is, uh, that is on camera, so I don't have to pack that. But I just take one, one suitcase, usually one suitcase and a guitar, and uh, a carry-on, and, and off we go. Yeah, you know, mothers think every place gets chilly at night. I could be going to the sun, and my mom would tell me <laughs> to bring a jacket. When I went to Qatar, my mom pressured me to bring a bunch of warm clothes. I have to admit for Sydney and my mom did have a point. I've been talking to people who have all said to me, yeah, it, it does get very chilly there. So you got to pack for that. Okay. So finally, uh, you mentioned Rob Stone. My wife was very nice in that she recognized that both of us are on the same flight and we both live close to each other. And she said, well, I'll drive you to the airport tonight. And would, would Rob like me to drive both of you guys? And so I texted him and I said, hey, you know, you, you want to ride to the airport? And immediately came back and said, what time? Because Rob Stone and I have very, very different philosophies when it comes to the airport. Rob Stone's perfect travel experience is getting out of the car, going straight to TSA, going right through, walking to the, uh, to the gate, walking 
immediately onto the plane and the door closing right behind him and him being the last. He doesn't want to give any time to the man. I cannot fathom living like that. It just gives me angst just even thinking about that. I would much rather be at the, at the airport, at the gate, sitting for an hour waiting for my flight to take off than rushing to get a flight. Rob thinks the family in Home Alone arrived at the perfectly appropriate time. Oh my God, it, 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 is, it is brutal. Even when he's traveling and I'm not even traveling with him, my heart starts to beat. I, I, I hate it. We're on the same side on this, but yeah, most people disagree. I mean, I've had experiences with Rob Stone, Stu Holt, and Johnny Araya across the years at Fox, and yeah, people have a very different philosophy of what's an appropriate time to arrive at the airport for a flight. Yeah, it, it, it has caused quite a bit of consternation, even within my family, because I, I am married to someone who is more Rob Stone-ish than, wow. I, than I have, and so it's, it's difficult sometimes, <laughs> our travel experiences. One last thing on World Cups as we embark on, this will be my fifth for Fox, uh, way back in 2018 when we did Russia for the Men's World Cup, you warned me, you said, be prepared because afterwards it is the ultimate hangover. And when I got back after six weeks in Moscow, here in LA, it was the most disoriented I have ever been in my life. For the next week or so, I was in an absolute fog. and But that was a learning experience. In subsequent World Cups, I figured out a way to uh, work around that. And I, I planned activities the day or two I got back so I could get right back into the swing of things. You know what I mean? Yeah. But man, if you don't do that, it, it can be really... You're in this bubble for five weeks. And, and then when you come back to, like, quote-unquote, your normal life, it can be a really odd transition. It, it is a groundhog day, the best groundhog day you'll ever live, but it is, like you said, a bubble. And the transition back to, quote-unquote, normal life uh, can take a little bit. But, you know, these are, these are first-world problems, and we're complaining about something that most people would kill or die to be given the opportunity. And we don't, like I said, take it for granted. We are incredibly fortunate and lucky, and we're excited. Uh, as I said, we are going to give it to you every single day. I actually, last, last thing, I had a terrible night of sleep last night. I slept only three hours, woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't fall back asleep. But it might be a blessing because it might help me fall asleep on the plane. Well, it's a pretty long flight, Mossy, so you can actually get a full eight-hour sleep and still have <laughs> half your flight to go. <laughs> so, and also, I don't talk to people on the plane. So don't think that we're going to have any kind of conversations or anything like this, okay? Uh, Once that door closes, I'm, I'm done. I'm quite certain when we get on the plane, you're going to go left, I'm uh, going to go right. How dare you? How dare you? All right, listen. Uh, like we said, uh, we, we can't wait to get down there. And we will be bringing to you, just like in the, in the, uh, the Men's World Cup in Qatar, down in Australia, we'll be give, we're giving you uh, content every single day. Our digital team is, is going to blow it out of the, uh, the, the, you know, the sea again. Uh, Jimmy Conrad's going down there and continuing and doing that kind of stuff. Uh, we will see producer Sean when we get down there. So continue to follow. And if you're, if you're into World Cups, this is a World Cup. And by the way, unlike the World Cup from, a few, uh, from six months ago, this is a World Cup from an American perspective where we have the defending champions and we have the women's, world, uh, women's uh, national team from a U.S. perspective going for an unprecedented third in the world. If you can't get on board with that, then I don't know what we're doing here. So get on board with the State of the Union and with all of our coverage when it comes to the, uh, the, the uh, World Cup. So continue to download and to rate and to subscribe and do all the different things that you do. We thank you so much for following us on all the different platforms that we have. So whether it's the Fox app or YouTube or Spotify or all the different places out there, just get your daily fix of the State of the Union because you know what? It's good for you. All right, we'll talk to you again from down under. And until then... And as always, my friends, size the day.